Good morning, everybody. It's time for the Sunday School Hour here at Faith Baptist Church. Little ones heading off to their Sunday School class this morning. All right, so last week was Family Feud, and we talked about... uh, The questions were over why we believe what we believe about the Holy Spirit. So that wraps up the Trinity. So we've talked about uh, paterology, which is what we believe about God the Father, Christology, which is what we believe about God the Son, and uh, the Holy Spirit is referred to, the theology of the Holy Spirit is referred to as pneumatology. So that wraps up. Uh, talking about why we believe what we believe about God specifically. And now we're going to move on to other areas that the Bible talks about. And before we can do that, we got to talk about, thank you very much. That was super loud. I didn't turn that down. And uh, we are a bit of a skeleton crew this morning. I feel a bit like, you know, you watch Pirates of the Caribbean and it's just Jack and Will on the boat and they're having to do everything. Thank you. That is kind of how I feel. I can't see your name, and there's nobody at the wheel. So whoever just did that, uh, both of you, we appreciate it. Um, but I do feel a bit like Jack and Will on the Black Pearl trying to get everything going just right, you know, getting going in the right direction to catch up to Barbosa. But uh, it should be a good week. Now, I will announce this in the next hour, but next week is our Sunday Sunday. And I'm so looking forward to a good ice cream sundae. That would be a good time. We'll have all the fixings, all the fudges and caramels and cookie crumbles and sprinkles and cherries and gummy bears, evidently, and all kinds of good stuff. It'll be a good time. Um, but this week, we're starting our new section on why we believe what we believe about the Bible. Because really, before we can dive into like angelology, which you can imagine what that's covering, right? And then like the theology of man, the theology of sin and salvation and the church and end times and so forth, you really need to understand, excuse me, why we believe the Bible and why we believe the Bible the way that we believe the Bible. This lesson uh, might get a little technical. I'm hoping to do it justice, though. I'm hoping not to bore you guys. Uh, so if I get a little lost in the weeds, somebody just throw up a, a white flag. Let me know you've lost me. There's a, When I see the fluid leaking out of your ear from your brain, I'll know I've gone too far. It's time to stop. Um, but when we're talking about why we believe what we believe about the Bible, The very first thing we got to talk about is what I like to call and what my Bible teacher, uh, Professor Stewart, used to tell us in Bible college, excuse me, was uh, you have to ask the five major questions of life, right? And that's what I want to go over first, or the five major questions of life. I don't know how much of what I've got prepared we're going to get through this morning and how much we'll finish up next week, but I want to take my time and really... Uh, do this portion justice. So it's the five major questions of life for you guys taking notes. Uh, The first question is, is there a God? Right? That's the big question. And it's a big question because there is no like scientific evidence 
that there is a God for sure. Like there is no test that they can run in some lab somewhere and prove that there is a God that exists, right? You can't do that. But also at the same time, you might be surprised to learn that there is no scientific proof that the Big Bang theory is true and also that the theory of evolution is true. And we're going to cover the Big Bang first in one quick little thing. The whole concept behind the Big Bang theory is basically summed up in two smaller theories. There's string theory and then there's dark matter. Right? And those are the two big ones. There's ones other than that. You don't have to know that. I won't go back over that later. But basically know that there is a job out there for scientists. It's called a theoretical physicist. Right? Any of you guys who have ever watched the Big Bang Theory on TV have maybe heard that, that phrase. That's what, Sheldon and, that's what Sheldon was. He was a theoretical physicist. Basically, to simplify that, their job is to try to prove the Big Bang to find evidence of this out there somewhere in the universe with, you know, either with their math and, and trying to, to prove it in ways that are over my head. But these guys still have a job, right? They haven't done it yet. They haven't proven the Big Bang Theory to be true after all of these years of trying. Brilliant men trying to, to prove it and still haven't done it. All right? There's no proof of the Big Bang Theory. Uh, also with evolution, you've seen, have you, you guys have seen the, 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 the chart or whatever it is where it starts off from like the monkey to the man. That's what it looks like on the shirt. That's not actually a monkey. Just so you guys know, uh, the theory of evolution states that what we evolved from split into two different directions, right? One direction was monkeys. The other one was humans. So the theory of evolution doesn't actually state we evolved from monkeys. Uh, we both evolved from the same sort of. Uh, evolutionary species, etc. You know, and I quote, but that is what they believe is that it evolved in two different directions, people and monkeys. But, you know, going back to that chart I was talking about where from that little monkey looking thing to a human that stands upright, you've seen that one of those things in there is an entire work of fiction. Yeah. From the little from the little creature all the way up to the man who stands up straight and carries a briefcase, you know, one of those in the middle there is completely made up. They have never found anything that looks like that. Nothing at all. You've heard of it referred to before. They refer to it as the missing link. Right. Which basically means they drew up this chart and found every other piece that they can piece together except for this one that they want. And they cannot find that one because it does not exist because we didn't evolve from another species. We were created by God, which is just as plausible as anything else. You know, what we find in the Bible is just as believable as what they talk about in science. If you were to believe the Bible, you would have to believe in a worldwide flood. That that actually happened. And what would you expect to find if there was a worldwide flood over the entire planet? You would expect to find billions of dead things, right, buried in various rock layers, right, all over the planet. You know what you find? You find billions of dead things buried in rock layers all over the planet. That's what you find. And you know what we've done? We've gone and we've looked at that and we said, wow. 
Each rock layer must represent a different area of billions of years. I, I don't know how, how that's supposed to work. I mean, again, I'm not a scientist. There's a lot of people smarter than me working on this, but didn't it make a lot more sense to think that Earth was turning on top of itself, you know, and the different rock layers settling based on the different densities and so forth? That makes more sense to me. Uh, but, you know, I'm just a simple preacher. But it, what you expect to find when what the Bible says it says it's what you find. Uh, did you know there's a lot of us out there that believe the uh, flood was started because basically the way the flood works was there's a giant water sack covering the entire planet. right? And a lot of us believe that the earth uh, was flooded, that God started the flood with a meteor shower. right? And that it came in and basically popped the water sack and pushed all that water in on the planet. If you like anybody who's got a really good telescope, if you look at the moon, what do you see? Craters all over the thing, right? It looks like a like a, somebody just beat the thing to death. You know, if they say if you pull back the oceans on the Earth and you look at it, it almost looks like a baseball that's been busted up and somebody tried to stitch it back together. Because you can see the impact of meteors to the point where a lot of scientists who believe in evolution think that that's how the dinosaurs died was from a meteor shower, because you can see craters all over the oceans, and some craters even on the land, right? I mean, and it just makes sense, because at some point, when you fit all of the different continents together, it almost makes like a puzzle. It almost fits together perfectly. They call it Pangea, you know, and that is what you would kind of expect to see take place, uh, you know, now that there are oceans, and the, the land is shifted, and that sort of a thing with the tectonic plates and so forth. But there is evidence of what the Bible says all over our planet. As a matter of fact, there's an entire field of study for it called creation science. And if that's something that interests you, I would check out a website called answersingenesis.org. Now, they're not King James only like we are, which we're going to get to at some point. Um, the plan is today, but uh, I don't know that that's going to happen. But uh, Answers in Genesis has a lot of really good articles on worldwide flood, on seven-day literal creation, a uh, lot of really good stuff. They've got stuff in there for kids and so forth, um, stuff for adults. It's uh, really good stuff. Uh, so that is the first question, is there a God? And I can tell you this morning, it is just as scientific, and we're just talking scientifically, it is just as plausible that there is a God as it is that there is not a God, right? And you wouldn't think that scientifically that that would be the case, right? The way they talk, you would think scientifically that they've almost gotten scientific evidence that evolution and the Big Bang is true, and we don't necessarily have to have a God in science, but it's just as plausible. It really is. And the thing about it is, what do you mean just as plausible? Somebody might say, don't you mean that it's more plausible that there's a God than there isn't? Scientifically speaking, no. And I'll tell you why. It's because God doesn't want to prove that he exists, right? He doesn't want you to go be able to do some sort of a test on the soil and prove that he exists. He wants you to believe in him, right? He's leaving that up to you. That's your choice. You choose whether or not to believe in God, and that's the way he wants it. 
If God wanted to, he could have written his, his whole story out in the sky. He could have done something to force you to believe that that's the only plausible answer. But that's not what he did. He wants to leave it up to you and give you the choice as to whether or not you're going to believe in him. And that is the first question of life. Is there a God? And I can tell you, it makes sense. Um, I watch a lot of Discovery Channel and stuff. I'm super into like space and that sort of a thing. And there is a lot of stuff out there in space. But every time they find something having to do with uh, the date of something, they never date anything older than ten to 12,000 years. Did you know that? Like we have things on Earth and they have different carbon dating and so forth that dates back billions of years. And there's articles and reasons why that stuff is incorrect. Also, uh, they found uh, like, uh, you know, at the bottom of the ocean, there's all kinds of stuff in the bottom of the ocean. You know, they found it was like a, a giant congealed thing of doorknobs. Yeah, it was weird, right? They don't know how it got there. But when they carbon dated it, it was billions of years old. I'm pretty sure doorknobs weren't billions of years old, you know, so there, there's some room for error there. Um, but everything seems to date back 10 to 12,000 years old, somewhere around there. Everything does. And when you begin to look at this, it all kinds of kind of pieces together because that's how old the earth would be if it was, you know, as old as the Bible says it is. And you would say, well, then why is it that things are carbon dated like they're billions of years old? Why is it that we look in space, we see like supernovas that take like millions of years to take place for a sun to go through its entire life cycle? How is it that we see those things if the entire universe is only 10,000 years old? When God created Adam, did he create a baby? No. Adam was one year old and he was probably 30. Right. But he wasn't 30. He was one. If you were to check some of the cells that take place and grow uh, over a portion of time, you would have scientifically proven that Adam was probably 30, 35 years old when he was one day old. Right. When he created the birds, did he create eggs for them to hatch out of? No, he created fully grown creatures. He created fully developed, fully grown plants. He didn't just create seeds. And it's the same way with the planet. When he created the universe, he created a planet. He did not create a brand new baby planet that was one day old. When the earth was one day old, it was billions of years old. Right? But it was actually only one day old. That is why things are carbon dated for billions of years. That's why it looks like the earth is billions of years old because it is and it isn't. Right. He created it as a fully matured, fully grown earth. So is there a God? There is a God. It's just as likely as anything else that there is a God. Right. So let's say there is a God. The second question is, has that God spoken? Right. That is our second question. Has that God spoken? Now, we're taking the assumption that there is a God. That is what makes sense to us because you can see order in the chaos and the more you think about it, the more sense that that makes. But, it, you know, that has that God spoken? This is a question that philosophers have spent their lives trying to answer. 
right? Has that God spoken? Well, let's think about it. Why? If God is creator God, and if God created the universe and the world and filled it with things that picture him, right? Fill it with things that teach us about him. Why would he not speak to us, right? If he's God, he would want to speak to what he created, right? Uh, it's the closest thing we can understand to is like a parent, right? Uh, a husband and a wife, they create a baby, right? And in creating that human, there's a bond. There's a connection. You want to get to know that. I remember when Jacob and Lizzie were both born, I couldn't wait to find out what kind of person they were going to be. They are so fun. And I loved that I found out what kind of person they are. They make everything more energetic and more exciting. I love it. But I just couldn't wait when they were babies to figure out what kind of a person they were going to be. I wanted to get to know them so much. And when they do things, even as babies, you kind of try to see their personality. You know, you're like, oh, I bet that's how they're going to be when they're because you just want to know them so badly. There's just that urge to get to know that thing that you created. And it's the same way with God. God wanted to speak with us. He wanted to get to know his creation, right? He wanted us to know him. Is there a God? Has that God spoken? It's very likely that if there is a God, he would have a desire to speak to us, right? And then the third question, the most important, one of the third major questions of life is, has he spoken in a way so as to be understood, you know, so can we understand what God said? So, like, what if we received the message from God? And this is the analogy Brother Stewart used to give, and I always liked it. Uh, but it was, what if we received the message from God, and the message was, we, we got it. It fell down from the sky, we picked it up, we read it, and it said, Cows on the moon spinning on their heads with cheese. Hang on. Yeah. Yeah, that's what cows on the moon spinning on their heads with cheese. That's what it says. Uh, preacher, you sure you're reading that right? Brother so-and-so, you want to double check that for me? I mean, maybe my glasses are weird. I don't know. Maybe I'm having a stroke. I don't know. What, what, what is going on here? No, preacher, it says cows on spinning on their heads with cheese. What if that was the message you received from God? He, he spoke, as, as, but it wasn't anything we could understand. What would be the point of speaking to us if it was something we couldn't understand? Or maybe it was something so intelligent and so beyond our human faculties because he is God and he is so far beyond us that we couldn't understand it. Again, what would be the point of that? What would be the whole purpose of communication, right? The whole reason that we have communication, we're able to speak in the first place, is I have a concept in my head. And I want to transfer it from my head to your head. How do I do that? With communication. With words. That's what they're for. God, being smarter than all of us, knows that. So he knows if he's communicating with us on a level we can't do, there's really no point in the communication to begin with, right? If I stand up here and I teach all of you in Spanish, the Bible, 
and none of you speak Spanish, what would be the point of me teaching? You know, if I'm in one of those um, hand raising churches, I don't mind the hand raising. You show up, do some of that. That's fine. But they'll stand up. And what do they do? They'll start speaking in tongues. They're not speaking in tongues just because they make their tongue do funny things. That's not what speaking in tongues means. And they stand up, they go, that's not a tongue, by the way. Uh, and the point of that is it's, there's no point, right? It's pointless communication because it's not conveying a thought from my head to your head or anybody else's. So, so as to be understood, God has, if there is a God, he's most likely spoken. And if he's going to speak, he's going to do so in a way as to be understood. Otherwise, there'd be no point. Now, the fourth question is where there's even more debate. Our fourth major question of life is, do we have a reliable record of what God said when he spoke? And a lot of people say, yes, we do. But we don't all agree on what that is. Right? The Jews, they have... Uh, the Torah, right? That's what they believe in. Uh, the Muslim faith, they have their book, uh, right? And it's it's different than the Bible or the Jewish scriptures. Um, you have the writings of Buddha that some people worship. And you have people who say, yes, there is a God, he's spoken, we have a record of it, but we don't all agree on what it is. Now let me tell you why the Bible is different than any of those other writings. Okay? Well, we're talking about the Bible. We're talking about a book that was written. I don't remember by how many different authors specifically. I, don't, I didn't write that down. But it is more than... I want to say more than 15. I can look that up for you later. But it is 66 books. 39 Old Testament books. You have 300, is it 300 or 500? Silent years. And then you have 27 New Testament books. Each of the four Gospels written by a different author. The book of Acts, written by Luke, which wrote the Gospel of Luke. And then you have the, the books of Paul, the Pauline epistles, they're called. Those are all written by the Apostle Paul. Romans, the Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, the Thessalonians, all written by Paul. Some people, like me, believe that he wrote the book of Hebrews, so there's no hard evidence for that. And then you have the books of Peter, written obviously by Peter, the books of J the book of James, written by James, first, uh, second, third John, and the book of Revelation, written by John. So you have all these different authors with all their different styles and all their different methods of writing and forming concepts and ideas with their words. And yet when you read the Bible, it all works together. Right? If I was to write something, if I was to start a story. And then I wrote the first five chapters, and then I handed it to Amanda, and I just told her what it was about, and I had her write more of it, 
And then she wrote however much she wrote, however many chapters, and she handed it to Sylvia. And then Sylvia wrote a bit of it, and then she handed it to David, and David wrote a little bit of it. There would be continuity errors, right? Like, it's hard enough. Like, if you've ever read a series of books, you know, if you've ever read or watched, like, a series of movies, like, let's take the Marvel Cinematic Universe, for example. How many nerds go over those movies with a fine-tooth comb looking for continuity errors, right? And if they find one, oh, man, are they in trouble. And so it's hard enough for the same people making the same movies to do something like this without continuity errors. You know, the problem with like the Harry Potter series, they're making these movies that are supposed to be canon now, and they've got continuity errors. You know, you've got one of the teachers from the original series is teaching in these new movies that are supposed to take place like hundreds of years before. And they're like, how? What do? You know, so the same author writing the same series of books has a hard time keeping up with continuity. Can you imagine over hundreds of years and different authors and 66 different books and they all have the same continuity? It's pretty impressive. And you might say that's pretty impressive, preacher, but it's certainly no proof. And that's true. But we can go further and we can do better. These writings, especially the books of Moses in the Bible, the first five books of the Bible, are the single oldest pieces of literature alive today. There is no writing as old or older than those books. They have survived time. As a matter of fact, uh, when the Dead Sea Scrolls were first discovered, they were discovered by a group of people who didn't know what they were, and they were burning them to keep, uh, they were burning them to keep themselves warm at night so they didn't die of cold because they didn't know what they were and yet we they discovered those dead sea scrolls and they were able to save the copies of them it has been preserved through time by god there has been no other form of literature that has endured as long as the words in this book Look at all the painstaking efforts they go to preserve the uh, Declaration of Independence. You've seen National Treasure, right? You've been there. You know. The glass and the bulletproof and the vault and the, the jam and all of that. Thank you. You got it. Delicious jams and jellies? No, that's not what the preservation room is. Right? But how old is the Declaration of Independence? Uh, yeah, almost 300 years old. Yeah, 1776. So, And we take all these painstaking efforts to preserve it because documents just don't last that long, right? And yet, we have some of the oldest writings in human history when we hold the Bible. The Bible has been used as the foundation for not just our nation, but many nations throughout the world and throughout history. The Bible was used as a foundation for most governmental laws. You've seen the Ten Commandments, right? Now, isn't it funny to you that a lot of those Ten Commandments also parallel as laws in the government? 
right? Thou shalt not kill. Everybody's got a law like that. No government wants you killing their citizens, right? Thou shalt not steal. In any country you go to, stealing is a crime. Right? Thou shalt not bear false witness against thy neighbor. If you go uh, into a courtroom anywhere in the world and you lie to that courtroom, there will be consequences. Right? So isn't it amazing that we have all of these same laws? And they may have different punishments, but they're, they hold very similar on a very basic and fundamental level. And that is because so many of our countries, even throughout time, countries that don't exist anymore, were based on the Bible. Right? There have been governments that have toppled because of the way they treated the Bible. You ever heard in history class about the Nazis burning Bibles? Right? That is one of the things that stirred us up so much to go destroy them. They were pure evil. And you could tell they were pure evil by the way they treated other human beings, especially the Jews. Their, their pure evil was a direct result of their lack of respect clearly to God and his word. And that's what stirred us up so badly to go destroy the Nazis. Not necessarily just the burning the Bibles part, but more the burning people. But again, there's a correlation. You know, if you're going to toss this out, what do you live by? You know, you live by your own code. Well, sure, then you can change that from day to day as you feel like, right? I'll wake up in a bad mood. My code's very different than when I wake up in a good mood. You know, there's no, there's no standing order, right? It changes with my mood. One day it's okay for me to come in here and yell at my whole family because I woke up tired. And then maybe one day it's not. So do we have a reliable record of it? And I would say yes, and I would say the Bible is that reliable record. I'd say history is on my side with that. And I would say even literature is on my side with that. And the last question is how reliable? Right? And that is the difficult question to ask. That is what we're going to be going through throughout the rest of this lesson, is how reliable is the Bible? Because it is, it is difficult. What you hear is the canon of Scripture was put together. The books that we do have in the Bible and the books that we don't have in the Bible was determined by a Catholic council, you know, hundreds of years ago. Right? That's what you hear. That's not, that's not true. That's not the case. Now, I tell you, the books that were and were not decided to be used were authorized by the apostles before they passed away. In each and every one of these books, you can find an apostle somewhere referencing it, or someone authorized by an apostle referencing that book. All the Old Testament books and New Testament books, right? Like uh, not all of the uh, Old Testament or New Testament authors are apostles, right? Like John Mark was not an apostle, but he was confirmed by an apostle, right? The apostle Paul said about John Mark before he died, bring John Mark unto me for he's profitable unto the ministry, 
he got that apostolic seal of approval, right? And all of the books of the Bible are like that. They are written by somebody of apostolic authority. All the Old Testament books referenced either by the Lord himself or by an apostle, right? Uh, the times of exile and so forth being referenced many times by the Lord. And so you have a reliable record of it because it's not just something a, a Catholic council confirmed. You see, the Catholic Church, they like to write their own version of history. You know, you ever heard somebody ask that question before, what if history is only written by the winners and it's not actually true? Well, I, I don't think that's true in most cases. I think for the most part, what we study in history is accurate. But you, you will find that as the Catholic Church dominates certain other areas, they will twist and change history to benefit themselves. A lot of these saints they claim for themselves weren't actually Catholic. You know, um, St. Patrick, St. Valentine's, so forth. Uh, you know, some of these guys were around before the Catholic Church had spread that far. And so they just kind of take these people and claim them for themselves because they like them. So they do. They change history as it goes. That's not actually the way the Bible was put together. The Bible was put together by the disciples of Jesus, by the apostles. Uh, so that is the canon of Scripture. When we're talking about the canon of Scripture, and in the Christian world, you're going to hear that phrase a lot when people are talking about the Bible. It's the canon of Scripture. But that's not such a weird phrase. Um, we were talking about things that are canon before. We were talking about like the MCU, right? And when we're talking about things that are canon, take a franchise like, uh, I give you a, a really nerdy example, right? Like Star Wars. Let's take Star Wars. They have nine movies that are main series movies, right? Those are considered canon. So whatever happens in those movies are officially part of the Star Wars timeline, right? Now, before Disney bought... Star Wars, they had all these books. You might have seen a few of them. All these Star Wars books that were on the shelves. And you could buy them and you could read them and it would like tell stories about Luke after the movies were over, the original trilogy, and sort of like he found a, a wife and got married and had kids and all this stuff. Well, when Disney bought it, they cut all that off. All right? They said, those books, those are no longer canon. Right? So in other words, they're no longer part of the storyline of Star Wars. But we're going to kind of do our own movie canon from here on out. Uh, so, like, also, let's take the Harry Potter franchise, right? You've got the Harry Potter books. There's seven books, right? Eight movies and seven books. And then you have another one. Um, you Harry Potter fans might have heard of The Cursed Child. And The Cursed Child is a play written by a Harry Potter fan, uh, that told the story of Harry Potter and his kids when they are at Hogwarts and sort of what's going on there. It is not written by the original author, J.K. Rowling, and therefore is not considered canon, right? So it's not part of the storyline and what actually happened, right? So that's what canon means. So we're talking about the canon of Scripture. We're talking about the things that fit and are a part of what God intended to be in the Bible, and the things that are not. So in older Bibles, when you buy a Bible uh, that's got the original like handwriting in it, because they like to be very sarcastic with the King James, oh, you want an original one? Fine, we'll do it where the V's look like W's. You know, the U's look like V's, and, and the, you know, 
and stuff like that. And it's like, you know what I mean? But when they, they do stuff like that, they will also add in, because they're being sarcastic about it, they'll add in what's called the Apocrypha. Anybody ever heard of the Apocrypha before? Okay. The Apocrypha is a series of books that they insert between the Old Testament and the New Testament. You remember what I referred to the silent years between the Old Testament and the New Testament? There are some who will add books in there as though they weren't silent years. Right? The Maccabees and, and different other uh, books that aren't in your Bible. Uh, the only problem is they weren't actually written as part of the canon of Scripture, right? They weren't a part of the religious goings-on of the day. So they weren't added into the canon of Scripture. They're never, ever one time referenced by any of the New Testament apostles. They're never referenced by the Lord himself. They were never a part of the canon of Scripture. But you have some that'll be like, well, when the Catholic Church confirmed the Bible, they had the Apocrypha in there as well. And the Catholic Church did not confirm it. The Apocrypha is not part of the Bible. Now, who has heard of the Gnostic Gospels? Okay, who has ever seen that movie, uh, The Da Vinci Code? That one, was it Tom Hanks that was in that? I think so. Now... The, there's a book also called The Da Vinci Code. Maybe you've heard of that? Okay. Now, The Da Vinci Code, and at least the movie from what I saw, was basically talking about there were these other Gospels called the Gnostic Gospels. And they weren't added into the Bible. And a lot of people believe, falsely, that they weren't added into the Bible because uh, the church at the time didn't like the way it made them look. It didn't fit. It didn't feel right. So they just chose not to add them. The Gnostic Gospels are like the gospel according to Mary Magdalene that a lot of uh, women's rights people would like to say weren't added because she was a woman and she was being oppressed. Uh, there's the gospel according to Judas Iscariot. That isn't in the Bible, uh, and many others like that. Well, the problem is when those books are dated, they're dated at least 100 years after the original Gospels are written. So these weren't written by Mary Magdalene and Judas Iscariot. They were written by somebody else trying to make money on this popular religion coming up. They'd say, who would do that? Well, I see books by Joel Osteen and God knows whoever else on the shelves today, so you tell me. You know? But the canon of Scripture doesn't include the Apocrypha. It doesn't include the Gnostic Gospels because they weren't really written by these people. And those people also weren't affirmed to write a gospel by the apostles. And so they are a part of the canon of Scripture. But every other book that you find in your Bible, that is a part of the entirety of the Bible. It's finished. It's complete. It doesn't need anything else. Right? It's done. This is the whole story from cover to cover, from creation to destruction. There is everything in here. It's sealed. It's done. So you don't need Joseph Smith receiving a book from an angel, right? Isn't that the way that they tell that uh, story? That Joseph Smith received uh, another book besides the Bible, and now we receive that, which is funny to me because in the New Testament, Paul says, though it were I or an angel from heaven give you any other, uh, any other uh, doctrine which is contrary to my word, do not believe it. Is it literally what happened? This is the whole entire canon of Scripture. 
Now, we've gotten to the Bible is the Word of God, right? And the Bible as we have it here today is the canon of Scripture. Now, in our church, we are King James only. Okay, and we have reasons for that. I am not King James only because my preacher was King James only, right? A lot of things my preacher did, I don't do, right? I'm not one of those follower guys. I don't just do what the other guys did. What I do, I do because I have a reason for it. We're King James here because I have a reason for it, okay? Modern translations since the 1900s mainly use eclectic editions, that conform more often to what's known as the Alexandrian text type. So basically you have original language versions, right? The Bible was originally written in the Old Testament. It was Hebrew. And in the New Testament, it was written by what was known as Koine Greek. Okay. Hebrew at a time was a dead language. And it was revived years later. Right. But do we have all of the same things that they had before? There's no way to know that. Probably not. Uh, Koine Greek is still a dead language, right? And when I say it's a dead language, what I mean is that you can read most of it, you can write some of it, you cannot speak it, right? It is a dead language, we don't know what it sounds like, and there are some things we just don't know what they mean, right? But we have most of it, enough to really study it. Uh, now, in these original texts, you have two basic um, translations, right? Because they didn't have printers and copiers back then, right? So what did they have to do? They had to hand write it. And what you ended up having was you had one uh, group of copies that was different than another group of copies. And they didn't really know how to uh, justify it. And so basically what you had was two sects of people entirely. Two different groups entirely. And you had one that was for the Alexandrian text type, and you had one that was for the Byzantine. Right? And so compared to the Alexandrian text type manuscripts, the distinct Byzantine readings, that's the one from which we derive the King James Version, tend to show a greater tendency towards smooth and well-formed Greek, they display fewer instances of textual variations between the parallel synodic gospels. The synodic gospels are uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke because they all share the same stories, right? When you get to John, John wrote his a little different, right? Uh, Matthew and Luke, they have uh, they start off with the the birth of Jesus. Uh, Mark starts off with the baptism of Jesus. John starts off with, in the beginning there was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. It's very different, right? So when we refer to the uh, synoptic Gospels, we're referring to Matthew, Mark, and Luke because they have a lot of the same stories. And the Byzantine uh, readings share uh, fewer instances of textual variations between those Gospels. Right? They are less likely to present contradictory or difficult ex issues of exegesis. So in other words, writing the book or reading the book and understanding what it's saying. Right? It contradicts itself less. That's the important thing to remember. So 
From that, you have two ancient Greek manuscripts known as the Vaticanus. It's called Vaticanus because it was located in the Vatican Library. And the uh, Sinaiticus, named for it being found at a monastery at the foot of Mount Sinai. And these are the foundation for all the other translations uh, in the different versions of the Bible. Are the Sinaiticus and the Vaticanus. The Vaticanus is the Catholic Bible. And Sinaiticus is the one that NLT, ESV, all these other versions use. Uh, the King James Bible comes from a uh, manuscript known as the Textus Receptus, but that's too long for most people, so we just call it the TR. Right? So from the Byzantine, it was the TR. And its uh, manuscript, uh, the King James agrees with its manuscript 95.25% of the time, uh, which is by leaps and bounds far more than any other version. The, uh, the two other manuscripts are said to disagree with each other 3,000 times in the Gospels alone. Okay? The King James is regularly known as the most accurate translation available today. Uh, when King James announced the decision to undertake a new translation of the Bible, he appointed 54 of the best biblical scholars and linguists of their day. Uh, they were divided into six committees, two at Oxford, two at Cambridge, and two in Westminster. The reason the King James is so rich in its nobility of its language is that the translators were careful to make it so. They chose the finest English words uh, that they had at their disposal, and the arrangement of its language was to be graceful and poetic. It took three years for the committee of scholars to complete the translation, and then two scholars were selected from each committee to form a review committee of 12 people, and three more years were spent reviewing and revising the work. Okay, so this translation was not something that some company up and decided to do. It wasn't something that a few men sat in a room and, and got done in a few years. This was painstakingly done by 54 of the greatest scholarly minds in their day and combed over for three years, then reviewed for three more years. Okay, so it is the richest the Bible can possibly be. Uh, it was worked on in ways that modern translators are incapable of for two reasons. One, English is dumber now. It just is. If you've ever heard of literary nuggets we have today, like hashtag, heard of that one? I, I personally, personally loathe the phrase YOLO. I hate that. You, you, you know what YOLO is? It stands for you only live once. So kids will come out here and jump off the top of a building with their skateboard and be like, YOLO. And uh, for a Christian, we don't believe that to be true. We believe you live for an eternity. Uh, as swag, you heard of swag? It's these idiots running around with 15 gold chains all over the place, you know, and they, they walk in like, you know, they just walk in like they've got like chafe, like they're chafed, you know. 
if they need to go put some baby powder on. Swag. You know? Uh, so it wasn't written before English got dumb. You say, well, the old English is hard to read. It's impossible to read. It's overcomplicated. And you know what? I 100% agree with you. It is. It's too hard. It's too complicated. That's why the King James is not written in Old English. Did you know that? The King James Bible is not written in Old English. You know what it's written in? It's called Middle English. Right? And it was between the two periods before we had these rich words that I just mentioned a second ago. Uh, but also after we eliminated some of the overcomplication of the Old English. You ever heard people say Shakespeare had a working vocabulary of, what is it, so many thousand words? That is because they had thousands of unnecessary words, right? So you have Middle English where it's less unnecessarily complicated, but it's not the dumb English we have today, you know, where it's too much work for us to say University of North Texas. So we just say UNT, you know, so it is rich and it's poetic and it, it does take some thinking. But when you're when you're studying and getting to know God, when you're looking for the formula to life, you know, when you're looking for answers for the complicated problem that is life, do you really want something that's been dumbed down? Do you really want the, the, the Spark Notes version of God's message to you? I can promise you Spark Notes only gets you the answers to the test. They don't get you the answers. Right? You out there in life and all you know is the Spark Notes, that's not going to be enough. Right, so this is why we are King James only. It is the best translation still today. You know why also? Because I said they're dead languages. In their day, they weren't dead languages. They weren't. They were speaking these languages to each other. Now they're dead. So you tell me how somebody who, who understands this as a dead language knows it better than somebody who was speaking it in their own day. Right? So... This is why we believe what we believe about the Bible. Leave a comment down below and let me know what you think. But I want to thank you guys so much for being here. We'll be back at, I'm going to say 10 after 11.